And so much for being here on, well, I guess this is a holiday weekend, with the fourth falling right in the middle of the week. I think we almost get two weekends out of it. So this is the, the first of our July 4th weekends. Thank you for being here. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Aaron Campbell. I serve as one of the pastors here at Redeeming Grace Church. I want to thank Chris for serving us this morning with sharing the announcements. Chris is one of our care group leaders and he is on our advisory board. Um, and while Matt and his family are away on vacation, he was serving, well, particularly me this morning so I could give my attention and focus on this morning's message. So thanks, Chris, for doing that. And I do want you to know what a sacrifice it was for Chris, in particular this morning, because, uh, well, he would have a soccer jersey on normally, and that, I didn't even request that, but that was something of his own volition. He said, all right, no soccer jersey this morning while I share the announcements, but thank you for serving us. Um, this morning, uh, we are continuing our study in the book of James. Our, our senior pastor, lead pastor, Matt Rawlings, has been leading us through a time of the study of the book of Nehemiah. We just ended that last Sunday. He is currently away on vacation. Throughout that series, I've been on occasion about every other month or so having the opportunity to share from the book of James, and I'm going to be continuing that this Sunday. Um, if you like to read ahead, though, I want to give you a heads up for next Sunday. Um, I am going to be sharing again, but I believe the, the topic for that will be a little different. I'm going to take just a pause on the book of James, and my plan for next Sunday is to look at Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And I just believe that God has a timely encouragement for us um, from the 121st chapter of the book of Psalms. Just as we go through different things as a church family, as individuals, God has us individually walking through. I, I, I think that's a common question. Where does my help come from? And personally, I've found these verses to be very encouraging even over the last few weeks, and I pray that that will be our common experience as we look at them together next Sunday. But this morning, if you have your Bibles, please open to James. We're actually going to begin reading in chapter 1, and then we'll continue where we've left off in chapter 3. So James chapter 1, verse 5. James writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. These are some of the words that James began his letter with. Saying, do you need wisdom? Ask God. He's eager to give you his wisdom. 
Now, as we turn to chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, James kind of goes back to that topic and asks, do you think that you have wisdom? Well, if you do, make sure it's the right one. You see that there's more than one brand out there. And each has their own origin, their own source, their, their own characteristics, and their own fruit. So we are going to look this morning at James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Would you read with me, please? Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray together and ask God for his help as we consider his word. Lord, we thank you for this privilege we have to gather together, to hear your word. We come this morning, and as James has encouraged us to do, we ask you for wisdom, knowing that you give generously. Lord, would we receive from you this morning? Would we be encouraged from your word? Would we be challenged by your word? Would we be changed by your word? Would you help us to grow, to be more like you? For your glory and for our good, we pray this. Amen. The proof for the test of wisdom, James declares, is in the actions it produces. James here shows us two types of wisdom. If we have the first chart, there's wisdom from below and wisdom from above. And throughout this passage, James highlights the origin, the different origins of these two wisdoms, how we can tell them apart, what their characteristics are, as well as the fruit that they eventually produce. So these are the things that we'll be looking at this morning. Our outline is really simple. We're looking at two types of wisdom, and then we're going to look at, at the origin, at the characteristics and the fruit of the different types so that we can identify what is from God and what is from not in those around us and in our own lives so that we might grow in the kind of wisdom that honors God. The proof of wisdom is in the actions it produces. Now we know from the book of Acts and accounts like the Jerusalem Council some of the issues that James the brother of Jesus who was a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church, some of the issues that he helped the church navigate during his 
years of ministry. At the time of the early church, after the church had been scattered and Paul had been sent out and many Gentiles were being added, confusions arose, even within the apostles, about what was the relationship between the law and the gospel. What do we have to have the Gentiles do? What, what is this good news to look like and how far does it go in its expression? Which is understandable. This this is a time when Scripture itself was still in the process of being written. That God was still providing inspiration through the different apostles. Um, These key doctrines and ideas, even on the gospel itself, were still being formed within the disciples, the apostles' own understandings. They had to sort out the impact of Jesus' life death, resurrection, ascension, the the impact of his teaching, what it had on not only centuries of tradition, but also on the scriptures themselves, on the Old Testament, as Jesus, after his resurrection, had opened their eyes to see that all of scripture was pertaining to him, something they and religious leaders for centuries had missed. Theirs wasn't a time of of fully formed creeds and catechisms. There were issues that were essential that needed to be worked through. In the midst of this, outside the apostles wrestling with these issues, many self-proclaimed teachers and people of understanding were proclaiming their own messages, their own gospels, their own pronouncements, some claiming that the Gentiles needed to adhere to the full ceremonial law in order to be saved. So that's what Jesus came to do. He came to make you Jewish. And so for you to really be a recipient, you have to do everything that is commanded in the Old Testament law. Others were seeking to marry Christianity with other doctrines teachings of the time like Gnostic teachings that was this philosophy that all matter is evil. And so if Jesus was God, then he couldn't have actually had a physical body. He was just a spirit. And his salvation that he brought, likewise, was just a spiritual salvation. It didn't have anything for our actual bodies because bodies are, are dirty and it's something to be cast away. They were trying to marry these ideas with Christianity. There were varieties of experts seeking to persuade any listening ears that they might find. See, the types of wisdom that James is highlighting in these verses are not merely theoretical. These were things that he was walking through, trying to lead his church through. His reputation historically is as a peacemaker, someone who was trying to hear what is God teaching us what do we need to take from this and what do we need to throw away. He had a front row to, well, really these different kinds of wisdom. He had an up-close seat, whether it's the issues that he was walking through as a leader in the local church or whether it was as Jesus' brother and seeing his battles with the scribes and Pharisees and the religious rulers of his day. 
He had to confront the challenges that the purported wisdoms of the age put forth. Much like he saw his brother needing to do a couple of years before. And the reality is our day has its own share of those claiming superior knowledge and wisdom. From Facebook and news media to book-length tomes, experts want to inform us why their view is the only view on topics ranging from science to religion, politics to personhood. The question is just as relevant for us today. How do we recognize true wisdom? How are we to exercise true wisdom? Well, James declares from the outset that the answer to the question, who is wise and understanding among you, will be evident by our actions and our conduct. And this is a familiar theme from James. Actions being essential for revealing the true nature of our relationship with Jesus have been his consistent message throughout this letter. Hearing God's word, remember, is not enough. We must do what it says. True religion is not just acknowledgement of a set of doctrines. It compels us to care for widows and orphans. Declaring our love for God is empty without a corresponding love for those in need around us. Saying we have faith, James told us, accomplishes nothing if matching works don't flow from that faith. Again and again, James advances the theme of religion and action, love that rescues, faith that works. And now he adds to his list wisdom. It's not merely enough to believe or claim that you are wise and understanding. You must show it through your conduct and works. Wisdom is revealed by what you do. As highlighted here, the test of wisdom isn't whether it is present, but what its nature is. So James helps us look at the sources of wisdom, and wisdom from the different sources are characterized, what they produce. So we're going to start with the first one, where wisdom comes from. James identifies two sources of wisdom, wisdom from above and wisdom from anywhere else. Understanding that God gives about himself, about the world that he has made, and how we are to operate with both, that is what qualifies as wisdom from above. And who better to receive our understanding from than the maker, the one who made us and knows us better than we know ourselves, the one who can give us insight into who he is and what he is like, the one who made heaven and earth and all that is in them. The one who made this world as good. Who endured its corruption because of our sin. And is now actively working out the reality of redemption purchased at Calvary. For us and for the rest of creation. 
As we saw in chapter 1, this giver of good gifts generously gives wisdom to all who come to him humbly, asking. But, James says, the creator isn't the only provider of wisdom. Others are competing for his territory. Ever since the garden, cheap imitations have been trying to flood the market with their own off-brand versions. Specifically, James says they are earthly, unspiritual, demonic imitators. Saying that they are earthly means they're not from heaven. They are consumed with the affairs of this world for its own sake, rather than in relationship to the creator or seeking to serve his prerogatives. Saying they are spiritual is, unspiritual is referring to our physical appetites, our lusts, our desires and cravings, concerns of the flesh, again, without regard to the spirit. Declaring them demonic is saying, well, there are worldviews and ways of thinking that have entirely set themselves up in opposition to God. It's the spirit of Satan himself. It doesn't all need to come directly from his lips to be born by his spirit or his ethic. Saying that they are unspiritual, earthly, and demonic could also be designated as these are ideas and ways of thinking that come from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And instead of the true lens God's word provides, these knockoff sources present their own worldview and a wisdom seeking to fit their twisted perspectives on reality. The reality is for you and I, it can be hard to detect their presence many times because we are like fish swimming in polluted water. We can fail to notice what is all around us because it is so familiar to us. Even if it is slowly killing us, it's all we know and we aren't even aware of how different life could be in different waters. Some of the times it can be hard to detect. Other times though, if we're honest, we're actually drawn to these false wisdoms. We can be drawn to these false wisdoms because frankly they offer exactly what we want. A worldview or a way of thinking that excuses or justifies a behavior that I hold dear. And we can become ensnared in our own sin and deception. Even when a friend or a book or a sermon gives us clear biblical advice, we keep going back. Back to false wisdoms. Because we like where we are at. Or because the alternative seems too naive to work in our situation. Or it's just too difficult to be a realistic option for me. 
I prefer my sin instead. We can leave true wisdom untried because at the end of the day, we think we know better or because it just seems like too much work. It doesn't matter whether the origin of our thinking is the culture we live in or our own cravings or the devil himself. If it's not from God, we are still choosing an alternate way of thinking and behaving to what God has declared to be best for us. In those moments, we functionally say that we are wiser than God, wiser than the word that he has given. We declare our way to be better and more desirable. Our circumstances, well, they're they're just exceptions to his eternal truth. Friends, when we're in that trap, that's not wise at all. Well, how, how do we tell these wisdoms apart? What, what wisdom is characterized by is the next thing that James gets into. He urges those claiming wisdom from above. Verse 1, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The first characteristic we see of a wisdom from above is meekness. When someone realizes their wisdom and understanding are gifts from God, they know that they are recipients of his generosity. Specifically, generosity that is given to meet their lack and to meet their need. I think it's really helpful to see this picture of how James considers wisdom because it's really closely tied to our understanding of the gospel itself. Illumination from God is essential to us receiving the gospel itself. He is a revealing God who delights to be known. So he has made himself known. He opens blind eyes. He has done everything that was required for us to know him and to be brought into relationship with him. None of us were asking for a savior when he sent his son. He has made in us the dead alive. He has allowed us to see And these same qualities of the gospel itself and the grace he gives to those in need who ask, the same qualities that are true when it comes to revelation and understanding from him, of wisdom that comes from him. It's something that he gives and that we receive. It's not something that's innate within us. It's something he needs to impart to us. But the good news is, He is a God who gives generously to all who ask without reproach. So if we have an understanding that our wisdom comes from God, that we are receivers of it, we understand that we aren't experts, but receivers of something precious from God to serve his purposes. We realize that gratitude and humility 
These are the things that are in order rather than self-aggrandizement. I haven't received this gift so I could make much of myself, but so that I could make much of the one who has given this gift to me. The truly wise and understanding also are aware that, well, we have limitations. There's reason for a meekness, a humility. We won't present ourselves as if we know everything because we don't. Indeed, when the subject matter is God himself, we can't know everything. He has revealed things about us, but we are still finite and limited and will forever be growing in our knowledge and understanding of the great, eternal, infinite God who is beyond our capability of grasping in his fullness. Even in eternity, I believe we will be growing, learning more about him because there will be so much to learn, but it will be a forever project because we will never plumb the depths of the eternal one, of the infinite one. We will always have our limitations even when we are with him and see him face to face. We will still marvel at who he is and what he reveals about himself and we will glory those wonderful characteristics Wisdom from above, therefore, needs to be practiced with an accompanying meekness. And James contrasts this, saying, do not boast and be false in the truth. In other words, don't lie like you know everything. Don't boast and say these things have all come from you. The fact is that being boastful, it just doesn't line up or make sense for those who have received something from above. For the gift recipient, well, it takes away our claim for boasting. I remember a couple year season shortly after college when I was, by God's kindness, moving from a place of really undefined theological understanding to a much greater clarity of the Bible's teaching on a number of key areas, including grace and the gospel, ideas that remain foundations of my faith today. This came through a process of reading and study, as well as messages and conversations that helped to shape my convictions of who God is And it utterly transformed my understanding of how he, in his kindness and grace and compassion, relates to me. But I also remember during that season a couple of occasions where I would engage with other believers who didn't share my newfound understanding. And I found myself convicted after those interactions because my response was to be proud. I found myself thinking I was superior to someone that held convictions that I myself held just a few months before and realizing how utterly foolish 
that seemed. To think that this was something within me that I have now attained that gives me any right of boasting over someone else who just hasn't had the same understanding, whether or not benefiting from the same teaching or, or whatever it was. It was God who opened my eyes. It was God who gave me these blessings, but I acted like it came from within. You see, there's, there's a reality and a danger, something James has already spoken to us about as even believers, that knowledge, even biblically accurate, divinely inspired knowledge, does not equal wisdom. Knowledge itself does not equal spirituality. Knowledge itself does not equal application. Yes, true knowledge is really important. Because if we don't have that as a foundation, well, then everything else is going to be askew following that. But knowledge itself is not the same as wisdom. It's not the same as understanding. Knowledge by itself, Paul tells us, puffs up. It's only when the spirit of love shapes the application of true knowledge, it's only then that we'll see wisdom in action. We, we need to understand the origin of true wisdom. When our wisdom comes from God, well, there isn't a need for us to prop up our credentials. There isn't a need for us to mock or to tear down others. It's not about our reputation because when we receive wisdom from the loving God who has been so generous to us, well, the aim of using that wisdom is to love God and to serve others with that which he has provided for us. Not to be ultimately well thought of by everyone else or needed or applauded. The focus isn't to be on us for something that was given to us by another. The focus is for us to point others back to this giver of good gifts, this giver who is generous with his wisdom and wants to give it to all who ask of him. James also highlights attributes of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition as marks of non-heavenly wisdom. I think there's little question that his own personal experiences informed his description here. And one that I think is, even if this wasn't the only thing he had in mind, I think it's helpful and clear for us to look at the example of the Pharisees, of these religious leaders whose account we have in Scripture. They had the embodiment of God's wisdom the eternal word walking among them, interacting with them, 
And yet their persistent goal was not to receive, was not to learn from him, but to try and trick him or trap him. They were jealous for the following that he was attracting the the crowds that were coming after him and declaring how he speaks like no man spaketh before. They were ambitious, not for the God that they claimed to be serving, but for their own authority and position that they held. I don't know if there's a clearer example than after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and word of his latest miracle was spreading like wildfire. And John writes in chapter 11, verses 47 and 48. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So they plotted to kill him. Wanting our own way can be utterly blinding. Following our own wisdom and throw us off from the true wisdom that God provides for us. What was Jesus' crime? It was healing people, feeding people, casting out demons, raising the dead. And those tasked with pointing Israel towards God acknowledged that he was unique, that he was performing many signs, that they, they weren't denying any of his works. They couldn't refute his teachings. But instead of asking what God might be revealing through these signs, they plotted. Not only to kill Jesus, but even Lazarus too. Because this miracle-working teacher was growing in popularity, which threatened their comfort and their position. The Romans will come and take our place, our position. Now, it's easy to pick on these guys because their sin and failure is recorded in black and white for all of us to see centuries later. But before we are too eager to ridicule their epic, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, it's important for us to search our own hearts and ask whether we have ever chosen to not obey because it was more comfortable not to. That sums up 90% of what I do. I'm lazy, it's easy to do this instead of what God has made clear here. Has our ambition for our own advancement ever been at odds with our ambition for his glory? Because 
in the pursuit of getting ahead, it's, it's better to blend in than to stand out for him. Have we ever questioned or regretted choices made for him when pining for something an unsaved neighbor or family member has or does? Selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, they don't just mark wisdom from below for Pharisees, but any that we might display as well. So James contrasts selfish ambition and bitter jealousy and shows that wisdom from above is characterized by a list of attributes that we should be expecting for any action that is motivated and empowered by the Spirit who gives us wisdom and understanding. He starts with purity. He says, this wisdom from above is first pure. This is the word for holy and set apart. This wisdom is holy because its origin is God himself. It's contrasted with the earthly wisdom that is all about us, about our cravings, about our reputation, our selfish ambitions. It's also peaceable, which means that it's not given to conflict. God's wisdom is peaceable because we can rest in what he has revealed. If we're adhering to a worldly form of wisdom because it justifies a behavior that we don't want to let go of, we often become so committed to our way that we're willing to fight those who get in our way. That's something we're going to see more of our next time in James in a few weeks. When I share God's wisdom with someone, I want them to benefit from it. But the reality is if if they have issue with it, I realize that their ultimate issue is with God. It's not with me. I guess they're the one respond I'm the one they're responding to in that moment, but they're really in opposition to God and his wisdom. My reputation is not tied up in whether they see things my way, because this is about what God has revealed. And I can rest in his ability to stand for himself. His truth is not threatened by whether they agree or not. The Spirit gives the gift of wisdom and understanding so I can pray that he gives it generously. The fact is, I can't argue it in to someone else. That's not the way God's wisdom is imparted. His wisdom is peaceable. Despite our best attempts on Facebook, it's not coming by argumentation. It's gentle, which means that it's gracious. It has the idea of yielding to another. Again, we see this contrast between this and the selfish and jealous earthly wisdom. It's open to reason. There is a humility when our wisdom is from above. We don't stand as self-appointed experts. We're able to listen. When we have questions, we return to God's word. 
we understand that we don't understand everything perfectly yet. There's a humility that comes from God's wisdom that, that realizes the place we're in. Yes, I, I know the God who gave this truth, and I'm going to do my best to represent it, but it doesn't mean there aren't errors in the way that I might do that. I can have humility to listen, to understand that I don't understand everything. It's full of mercy, which comes from the understanding that we are receivers from God. We are not self-made individuals. We haven't gotten to where we are just by pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps. And likewise, others need to be receiving from God. So I can be patient and merciful knowing, well, knowing that God has been patient and merciful with me. It's full of good fruits. This is encouraging when we do things the way that God says are best. Surprise, surprise, there are benefits that we experience from his wisdom. It's impartial. In chapter 2, James warned against partiality, that our love isn't to be only directed towards those that can benefit us. Wisdom from above is generous to all, just like the God who gives it to all who are needy enough to ask him for it. It's sincere. It means it's without hypocrisy. Because the aim of wisdom from above is to honor God, not to advance my own cause. Again, it's a contrast to selfish ambition. Wisdom from above is sincere. So he's shown us these two types of wisdom and what each is characterized by, how we can recognize it in ourselves and in those around us. And finally, he he goes to what each produces. One wisdom produces disorder and every vile practice. Now, when the characteristics of wisdom are fueled by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and their bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, it shouldn't be a surprise that disorder and every vile practice would be the result. I think we have a picture of this in the book of Judges after Moses and Joshua, before Israel has a king for themselves. We're given the account of the Judges, and, and reading through Judges, you, you get a decent sense of what disorder looks like number of vile practices that were going on among those who were supposed to be representing God as his people. It was the Israelite version of the Wild West where the repeated refrain throughout the book was every man did what was right in his own eyes. That wasn't a commendation. In other words, they weren't looking to God as their authority, but whatever wisdom was most appealing to them, 
in the moment. The reality is if I am ruled by what is right in my own eyes, it is bound to collide at different points with what my neighbor thinks is right in his eyes. And it doesn't take very many neighbors for chaos to be unleashed. Before every vile practice is inevitable. See, rejecting God's word to follow our heart never produces a harvest of righteousness. When every person defines morality for themselves, that's not a recipe for societal success. Galatians 6, the Apostle Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Wisdom from above produces very different fruit than the wisdom that comes from everywhere else. James says it produces a harvest of righteousness as it is sown in peace. Those who submit to God's wisdom, those who submit to God's way, acknowledging that he knows best and I want to live according to who he has created and redeemed me to be, there are blessings that come through that. There is a harvest that is given to them. They will harvest what they have sown. Now, a key here, as pointed out by Paul, is don't give up. If you're trying to impart God's wisdom in your children by reading God's word with them, but you don't see evident fruit right now, don't give up. If you're trying to honor God with your finances by working off debt or giving to others, but it's slow and often discouraging, don't give up. If you are working a job you don't consider personally fulfilling, but right now you recognize it's what God has provided to meet your family's needs, don't give up. If you're in school with little desire to be there, but realize this is what God has provided for you in this season to honor him and glorify him, don't give up. If you're in a hard place in your marriage, yet you're striving to love and honor God and your spouse, 
don't give up. If you are sowing righteousness, but not seeing the fruit you desire yet, don't give up. The reality is that some crops take longer than others before we enjoy the fruit. Some plants yield their fruit in a single season. You sow them in the spring and in the summer or fall, you harvest them. Other trees and vines, they produce much more fruit. But it can take years before the plant is mature, before the fruit is realized. And the reality of living in a fallen world is that some of the things we sow in this life, we will not reap until the next one. But God is faithful. And a harvest will be reaped. He won't be mocked. Not by those who think they can get one over on him. By sowing other things. But he also won't be mocked. In that he. He will provide the good that he has promised. He will not allow his name to be defamed. He will be faithful. Don't give up. Wisdom from above. Well, it must be put in action, but it will yield a harvest of righteousness. Friends, if we lack wisdom, let us ask God who gives generously. And then, let us do what is good because wisdom is revealed in the actions it produces. Let's pray together. Well, I thank you that you are such a generous God. That you haven't just told us about yourself you have given yourself for us with one who has shown and displayed his love so clearly we should not be surprised that you give good gifts generously as well Lord where we lack would you give us faith to ask faith to trust who you have revealed yourself to be, would we not doubt your generosity, but when we cling to it, would we run to you in your graciousness? Lord, thank you that you have given yourself for us, that you have revealed yourself most clearly by coming, by showing who you are, by dying for us and being raised again to new life, to know what we can look forward to. But how good you are. Fill us with an awareness of your great love and generosity. In your name we pray.